Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Hey there, podcast listeners. I'm recording this introduction on Monday, December 17th, 2012. Three days ago, on Friday, December 14th, I learned about the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Probably like many of you, I found out about it on Facebook. I was at work, and I received a text alert that my friend Erin had updated her Facebook status. She wrote, Oh my goodness, my heart is breaking. Connecticut. There was no link, so I hopped onto Google News. A few minutes later, my heart was breaking too. By Friday night, it seemed that the entire nation was heartbroken by the news of 20 children and 7 adults who were gunned down in Newtown, Connecticut. Today, three days after the massacre, the first children were buried. And while we don't know much about the gunman, Adam Lanza, we know this story all too well. He was, like the gunman in nearly all of the other recent mass shootings in the United States, a middle-class white male with a DSM diagnosis and access to guns. The story of mass shootings in the United States is sadly familiar. And although the specifics of this story are only days old, if it plays out like Columbine, Virginia Tech, Aurora, and the others, in the coming days, weeks, and months, the story will unfold something like this. A nation of shocked and grief-stricken people will come together in a shared sadness and sense of disbelief. Journalists will do their best to piece together answers that were buried along with the gunman. We will talk about mental illness. We will debate the relative merits of an armed citizenry. Schools will review crisis plans, safety protocols, and risk management. We will ask why. We will eventually go back to work, and then the lawsuits will start. And that last point brings me to the topic of today's Social Work podcast. Social Workers in Court, an interview with Alan Barsky. If journalists were the only chroniclers of mental health-related lawsuits, we would assume that social workers, counselors, psychologists, and other professionals only get called into court after a mass shooting or when there's a child welfare debacle. The reality is that clinicians get called into court all of the time. And not because clinicians are always screwing up, but because somebody calls for a lawsuit. If you work in child welfare the juvenile criminal justice system, or hospital settings, going to court is probably part of your job. And you know that in court, that's where you can provide support for your client, defend your own actions, and in some cases, make the system better. Now, if you work in a job where going to court is the exception rather than the rule, it's still important to have a basic understanding of what happens in court and what are your responsibilities as a professional. So, to figure out more about this issue, in November 2012, I spoke with Alan Barsky, professor of social work at Florida Atlantic University and chair of the NASW National Ethics Committee. Alan has a background in social work, law, and mediation. He's also the author of three books, including Clinicians in Court, published by Guilford Press. In today's interview, 
Alan and I talk about what it means for a social worker to be court ready, especially for social workers whose jobs do not typically involve going to court. We talked about the difference between forensic social workers and social workers who have to appear in court. Alan talked about the difference between client confidentiality and client privilege, between being a witness and an expert witness, and between preparing for legal proceedings and disciplinary proceedings. He gave some pointers on how social workers should respond to a subpoena. And I asked him about examination and cross-examination, because that's what seems to be the most stressful part for most social workers. He talked about how social workers can prepare for it, including some strategies for dealing with the tough questions that can arise during a cross-examination. We ended our conversation with Alan providing some resources for social workers who want to know more. And if you want to see the list of those resources and references, as well as read a transcript of my conversation with Alan, please go to the Social Work Podcast website at socialworkpodcast.com. If you want to join the conversation about clinicians in court, go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash swpodcast. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow the podcast at S-O-C-W-O-R-K podcast. And now, without further ado, on to episode 76 of the Social Work Podcast, Social Workers in Court, an interview with Alan Barsky. All right, Alan, thanks so much for talking with us today about clinicians and the court system. What do clinicians typically think about when they think about the courts or the legal system? And, and what are some things that, that we don't think about that you think are important for us to, to know about or have in our mind? I think a lot of social workers uh, and other clinicians, if they're not in a context of working with the law, working with legal systems like criminal justice or child protection or even mental health, they don't think too much at all about the legal system. I'm not going to end up in court. I don't have to really prepare for uh, court. I don't need to conduct my practice in a way that's uh, uh, going to be ready for court. But when something arises, they're really not prepared for it. And so if you get sued for malpractice, that's the first time you start thinking about appearing in court. Which is a little too late. Right. There's always better to have the preparation ahead of time, not just preparation for court, but the way that you prepare your practice and the way that you prepare your notes. So if all along in your career you've got court-ready notes, it's going to be a lot better than if you've got notes that are really disorganized, don't really look professional, don't really separate out what's fact and opinion and that sort of thing. So it's not just, you know, I'm going to be in court tomorrow because court takes a long time to um, to pan out. But if you know ahead of time some of the issues that might come up if you get involved in a court process, you can certainly um, conduct yourself in a much more professional and manner and, and manage a lot of the risks. So what are some of the important things for social workers and clinicians to, to understand about court? So you, you talked about court-ready documentation, but what are, what, are some of the, what are some of the basic things that they should know? One of the issues is to know about uh, confidentiality and what are the limits of confidentiality. There are many social workers who are practicing um, in a field of practice that's protected with uh, what's not just confidentiality but privilege. And privilege is a concept that you can't be compelled or required to go to court unless the person who uh, is the client consents to you appearing in court. So in many states, if you're a clinician and you're a licensed clinician, um, the 
court can't require you to testify unless your client is also giving you permission. Um, in some fields of practice, you're much more likely to be called into court. It might be part of uh, the work that you're doing. So if you're a child protection worker, you need to know that you know if you can't work out things on an amicable basis with your clients, you might have to defend your case and your position by going into court. Or if you're working in an area like uh, um, family law where there may be you know, a lot of tension and anger between the spouses during separation and divorce, again, you might be more likely to end up in court. Um, or you might even choose an area of practice like forensic social work if you are uh, interested in doing child custody evaluations or if you are uh, wanting to work with attorneys on uh, litigation cases. Um, then you can specialize in um, certain areas and fields of practice in order to uh, make yourself a much more persuasive and credible uh, person who gives testimony in court. And by forensic social work, you mean... When we usually think of clinicians or social work practitioners, we think of them as helping agents. I'm there to counsel, I'm there to provide therapy, I'm there to provide support. When you're in a forensic role, your duties are to the legal system. And so a lot of people don't really realize that uh, when you've got obligations to the legal system, it may mean that you actually can't help your client. If I am doing a custody evaluation, I can't provide therapy or counseling to the parents who are going through separation or divorce. And as a social worker, we're so trained to be helping of people, uh, it, it's a real tension. And then when we get into court, we sometimes think that, oh, you know, I really want to help my client but your role as a witness is to help the court, to help the judge or the jury. So a question that always came up in our agency was, if somebody shows up with a subpoena, what do we do? One of the ways to respond to a subpoena is to contact your attorney. And so if you really are not sure what to do, then uh, either your personal attorney or your agency attorney uh, should be able to help you. There's a number of different types of subpoenas. And so some subpoenas are actually a court order, meaning that if you don't show up in court, then there could be um, criminal uh, uh, consequences that come out of it, including imprisonment. Not likely, but that's a possibility. Um, a lot of times, though, a subpoena is a request to appear that's initiated by an attorney for one party or the other. And you don't really even know if that's a valid subpoena, um, if it's uh, challengeable, etc. Now, we have to remember that confidentiality and privilege are owned by the client, not by you. So one of the things that we do when we receive a subpoena is we let our clients know that we've received a subpoena. If our client gives us consent to appear in court, then ordinarily we should appear in court on their behalf. And so that's honoring the client's right to self-determination. Some social workers, again, think they own the privilege and confidentiality and think, you know, I don't want to appear in court, so I shouldn't have to. And sometimes if you're called to appear in court, it takes away from your time, your time with clients, etc. So you think, well, how come I should be compelled to, um, to go to court? So again, if we know about confidentiality and privilege and um, subpoenas, we can organize our practice in a different way. You can have an agreement with your client that they will not call you to court, okay? And that might be enforceable, but at least it's some protection against the clients calling you to participate in court. Or you might say, if I am called to court, the client will pay a fee and you can at least get reimbursed for your time in court. So in terms of, you know, getting subpoenaed, is there any way to, like, keep yourself from having to respond to a subpoena? 
One of the things that you can sometimes do when you receive a subpoena that's from a lawyer that's not a, a court order, um, if you've got permission from the uh, client, uh, your agency or your agency's lawyer might actually contact the person giving the subpoena because if you have that conversation with them, there may be the possibility that uh, they'll understand that it's not a good thing to call you into court. A lot of times the information that we have is secondhand information and so it's not really as strong or uh, as useful to the court as the attorney might think. Um, another possibility is there's a lot of pretrial processes and so just because you're called into court doesn't actually mean that there's going to be a court hearing so you might want to wait to see what happens if there's discoveries or depositions other mediation or other pretrial processes because the case might just settle and you don't have to appear in the end um, but often what people want in the early stages is the sharing of information and so if your client has uh, given authority to you to um, release their records, they may not understand that if you release some of the records, you have to release all of the records. And you can't just release the good stuff about the client. So if the client and their attorney really realized that sharing this information with the court wasn't such a good thing, maybe they wouldn't call you at all. Um, another possibility is to do a motion to quash, a motion to um, cancel or veto the uh, uh, subpoena. And so Usually it would be the client, if the client had the means and the attorney to um, pursue the motion. As a social worker, you might have to give them some legal information or perhaps even help them with the funding to be able to do some sort of motion to quash if they um, can't afford that on their own. Um, but perhaps their attorney will pursue it for you, so that's ideal. And then your agency and uh, sometimes uh, even the profession may have an interest in protecting a certain type of relationship. So um, it may be um, the agency or you as the social worker that decide we're going to try to pursue a motion to quash. But you have to have good legal grounds for it and it's not something that you can do without the assistance of an attorney. So let's say you get called in, right? And you're, you're going to go to court and you're going to be on the witness stand. Um, there's this thing called cross-examination. Right? What, what is that and how would, you, how would you prepare for that? There are two types of examinations. The direct examination is whoever calls you as the witness, they can ask um, general questions, open-ended questions, and usually their perspective, the outcome that they prefer is the one that you or your client would also prefer. So it's really a friendly lawyer asking you questions, taking you through your testimony because they think the information or perhaps the opinions that you have are going to support their case. After you've presented that um, information uh, evidence in the examination uh, from the friendly lawyer, the other lawyer or sometimes more than one lawyer have an opportunity to also ask you questions and that's the cross-examination. And so they can ask you questions that try to impugn your credibility, challenge your honesty, your perception, your memory, try to make it look like the evidence that you're providing is not fully accurate. Um, they don't have to prove that you're lying. Sometimes they just have to raise enough doubt so that the judge or jury can't say, okay, we can depend on this information. So when you appear as a witness, you want to not just appear as you know, open and honest, but also credible and persuasive. And this is one of the areas of uh, the uh, court hearing that most people are um, have the highest anxiety about because you're being challenged, uh, you're being questioned, you're being asked uh, questions that uh, might uh, look at 
to private areas of your life to try to show that you're uh, not as upright and honest a citizen as uh, you'd like to, to think of, a, of yourself. Um, they might look for inconsistencies between what you present in your notes and what you present orally. Um, they might look at inconsistencies between what you've got in uh, reports or what you've presented at any of the pretrial processes. So there's a lot of areas where you can get tripped up and it looks like uh, you're on the stand, that you're being challenged, that you're on trial. And in some cases like malpractice, yes, you really are on trial, but in a lot of cases, your job is really just to present the best evidence that you can. And I think to know that, you know what, my evidence isn't perfect, helps you to see, you know what, if it doesn't come across as perfect, I'm not gonna take that so hard. I'm doing the best I can. Because it does, you know, from, from TV and movies, like that cross-examination, it seems like it, there's always this the, 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 the moment where there's this one question that somebody says, but, and they want to, you know, the witness wants to say more, and then everybody's like, stop, you can't say anything. And it seems like a really unfair question. Like, it, it paints the witness in a bad light, it, you know, kind of everything, and it seems like it's kind of misses the, misses the point. Like, if you had asked a five-year-old, was that a good question? The five-year-old would say, no, bad question, right? But it seems to tip the scales. And you preface it by saying, this is what we see on TV. So it absolutely is possible that uh, you could be asked questions that are completely inappropriate and could be overruled as being you know, too prejudicial or irrelevant or whatever, but the person still makes a point. So they ask you a question about, uh, you know, isn't it true that you were born in Kenya? And what relevance does that have to do with the case? But, you know, it's out there. And so if people are discriminatory about people from Kenya, it might have a, an impact on them. Most of the stuff that happens in court is a lot more boring than what you see on TV. But you still need to be prepared for some of the things that might come up. And there's a lot of strategies that you can use. Um, so, for example, let's say that uh, you're asked a really pointed question or a series of questions and you're not quite sure what to say. You know what you can say? Can I think about it for a minute? Or I don't know the answer. And a lot of people think that they have to know the answers. And it's okay if you really don't know to say, I don't know. I don't have an opinion on this. I don't have a current uh, recollection of this. Again, the most important thing when you're on the stand is to be honest. And people will see you as honest when you're not perfect. If you look too perfect, sometimes that means that you're making up stuff. You've rehearsed it. And so sometimes just being yourself, being honest, slowing things down, taking a deep breath, using the different uh, things that you use in your ordinary life to um, decrease stress and anxiety, use those on the stand. If you need to do something like twiddle your fingers, you can twiddle your fingers. But also look at, well, if you're twiddling your fingers, how might the jury or others uh, um, perceive that? And there's a lot of like simple strategies to uh, do if you're um, asked a tough question by the cross-examining attorney, look them back in the eye. Don't look over to your uh, client or to the attorney because it looks like you're reaching for them to give a, an answer for you. Um, another strategy might be something that just uh, 
you know, delays things a little bit. If, if you're really under a lot of stress and you need a break, you can say, I need a bathroom break or whatever it is that you need. Um, so try to take some control for yourself. I think the more people learn about the court process through observing, through reading, through talking to others, through role-playing, the more empowered that they will be. And um, as social workers, uh, you know, as professionals, we want to look good on the stand. Um, we want to do good for our clients, but we also have to know at the end of the day, um, we're supposed to be there to provide as truthful answers as possible. And that's the basic end of it. So obviously there are some domains of social work which have more interaction with the courts than others, as you were alluding to earlier. If you work in an area of social work that typically doesn't have involvement with the courts, and so this isn't part of your agency training, it's not something you think about very often, but but you find yourself being called to court as a witness, what are some things that you should do? How, how do you prepare? How do you think about it? What is your role? All, all those sorts of things. I think one of the things to look at is uh, what is the nature of the case? What is the nature of your role in that particular case? So if you don't have the knowledge yourself or the experience in that particular type of case, then find somebody that does. Ideally, it would be someone in your agency. Um, it's There's more and more people out there who've got dual backgrounds in social work and law or mental health and the law, so those people can be really helpful. Um, it may be that the person calling you to court is a friendly lawyer, somebody who's on the same side of the case as what you or your client would uh, want to pursue. And so that person might be able to uh, prepare you and uh, educate you and even do some uh, role plays to help you prepare for it. But you also have to remember that uh, even if there is an attorney to prepare you, who's paying for that attorney? Because a lot of times it's, you know, hundreds of dollars per hour and they may have limited time and some attorneys are uh, better than others at preparing their witnesses. So um, ideally, yes, you would get prepared by the attorney who's calling you as a witness, but that's not always the case. So you might need to take on some of the responsibility yourself. Uh, one way to prepare is to actually go observe cases that are similar. So if you're called to a child protection hearing, usually those are closed to the public, but you could go to the court administrator and ask them if you'd be able for professional purposes to observe some hearings and to be able to see people in action and how they respond to different questions and things like that. Um, you could read uh, you know, various uh, textbooks, doesn't have to be my textbook, but there's a lot of uh, tips on, and strategies on how to respond to different types of things. Um, a lot of times people want to tell their story and they think that uh, all of the information that they have is important and should be shared and they get really frustrated because you can only answer the questions that the attorneys ask. And there may be objections to the types of uh, information that you're providing. If you're a fact witness, you're only there to provide the facts. You have to be qualified as an expert witness. That means the court says that you're qualified to give opinions. And so a lot of people, if they were called to court, they would think, well, I'm a professional, so of course I'm an expert. But you're not always an expert in the area that you're giving the opinion unless the court says that you are. I think that brings up a really interesting distinction. So you have, there's a witness, right? And then there's the expert witness. And you alluded to this idea of sort of fact versus opinion. Could you elaborate on that and then talk a little bit about um, what happens if somebody gets called to be an expert witness, what that means and, and, and what that might entail? Sure. It, it helps to understand the legal system and how our uh, trials work. 
in a court system, the people responsible for making the decisions are the jury, if there is a jury, or the judge, if there's no jury. And so they're supposed to make the decisions on fact, and it's the witnesses who provide the information or the evidence to help them to determine those facts. So ordinarily, the court does not like people giving them opinions. So as a social worker, you should not walk into court and saying, she's guilty, or she should have custody, or she should, uh, you're not supposed to make the decision for the judge or the decision for the jury. Now, courts have recognized over the years that there are occasions when it is helpful for the court to be educated by someone who has more expertise than the judge does themselves. And in family law cases, for example, a judge doesn't want to have to make a decision about where children should live or how they spend time with each of their parents uh, without having in-depth knowledge about uh, child development issues and family issues. And somebody who's actually um, observed and uh, in a scientific way evaluated what's going on in the family. So they'll want to have experts come in. And so um, judges will want to hear people who have expertise in a particular area give their opinions. Now, ideally, the expert is somebody who is neutral and impartial. And in some types of cases, uh, courts will actually not hear people who are hired by one party or another. In other types of cases, there is a, a competition between the plaintiffs and the defendants' attorneys and uh, each of the experts that they will provide. So you've got dueling experts. And so you need to know what exactly is your role as an expert. Are you there to um, explain complex psychological or social issues? Are you there to conduct an assessment or an evaluation applying your knowledge and expertise? Um, are you there to give opinions or are you there just to explain? That's really interesting. So we've touched on a couple things that social workers should know about, everything from documentation to, you know, examination, cross-examination. You've, you've mentioned some terms like discovery, deposition, and things like that, that, that some folks might not know what they mean, but are important for understanding the legal system. Now, you've, you have a second edition of your, your text, Clinicians in Court, a guide to subpoenas, depositions, testifying, and everything else you need to know. So what are... Um, what is everything else that somebody needs to know that they would find um, in your text? One of the areas that we start off with is uh, um, being a good reflective practitioner and what does it mean to be uh, called into court and working with attorneys and working with uh, judges. So a lot of us as social workers might have some negative opinions of the justice system because we've seen it being used against our clients in ways that we don't think are fair to our clients. And so it's important just to have an understanding of you know how are social workers similar to or different from uh, lawyers? Uh, how is participating in a legal system different from the ordinary types of help that we provide as uh, social workers? Um, also, how can we conduct our practice in ways that's more likely to keep us out of court? And so if we keep really good records, if we write our reports and write our assessments in particular ways, uh, it's not just helpful to us, it's helpful to our clients. A lot of times it's strong facts, strong evidence that wins cases, not strong witnesses. And lawyers will sometimes say, if it's not in paper, it didn't happen. And so if we take good notes and we write things down and it's a he said, she said, your written notes are the thing that might trump everything else. And uh, even the attorneys will see that ahead of time and they'll, they'll hopefully negotiate a solution rather than have to fight it out in trial. What a great gift that you can give to your client is to save them a court case. 
you know, the, the time and the expense and the aggravation and everything else. So it's much better if you can do things in a way that keeps you and your clients out of court. So we've got some information about things on uh, managing your practice. And that includes uh, avoiding malpractice situations and risk management. So let's say that you're engaged in an area of practice that's somewhat risky and you've got a risky intervention with your clients. What can you do with your informed consent process, with ensuring that clients really understand, with your insurance companies, with your agency policies, etc., to make sure if something negative does happen, you've got a way to cover for that. Um, even just our responses to clients when they have grievances. A lot of times when a client complains, we think, oh, we got to call in the lawyers. And it may be absolutely true that you need to have some legal advice, but be careful about a lawyer who says, okay, we have to stop serving this client. Just cut them off. Well, we've got an obligation not to abandon our clients, number one. Also, we might be able to save the relationship. It may be through apology, it may be through compensation, it may be through just good counseling that, you know, find out what this client really wants. They may not want to go to court, and sometimes a client who feels heard and feels like their concerns are validated, they're going to get more from that than they would get from court anyhow. Um, we're lucky a little bit as social workers because most clients and attorneys don't think we have a lot of money, so we're not worth suing. Um, but, you know, there still are uh, cases against us and grievances against us. Um, some of the things in the, in the, the book focus primarily on um, clinicians in court, literally, but also there's a lot of strategies that would be useful regardless of the type of hearing. So people are probably more likely as social workers to be before a licensing board than before a court. Um, in terms of client grievances and so you could use a lot of the strategies if you're um, dealing with a licensing board as well. That sounds like a really valuable uh, text to have whether you're in agency setting or in private practice whether you're preparing for a court case or you just want to try and avoid <laughs> going to court if possible. Um, to be fair and balanced are there other resources for uh, social workers who are interested in learning about courts or the sort of legal side of it that you could recommend? You know there's all sorts of uh, forensic associations in uh, National Association of Forensic Social Work and Psychology and also Psychiatry. Also it depends really on the field of uh, practice that you're in, so the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts if you're involved in family law or juvenile justice. Um, there's restorative justice organizations for uh, criminal uh, law and alternatives to uh, criminal law. Um, if you're involved in child welfare, the Child Welfare Information Gateway is just a phenomenal resource. Uh, look at the various uh, sections of the NASW because they've got uh, forensic uh, areas and areas that cross over into uh, forensic areas. Um, Oxford Bibliographies Online has a whole uh, list of uh, resources that are related to social work in the law, including the court system and even beyond. That's great. Well, Alan, thanks so much for talking with us about clinicians in court, and uh, I hope that the folks who are listening will feel a little bit uh, either more prepared or a little uh, more appropriately anxious and will therefore be uh, better providers. So thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast. Thank you.